Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So have you seen The Mandalorian? It's good, yeah. Uh, it's a show that I think belongs within the Star Wars canon, and I'm willing to fight you if you disagree with me, but not physically, but um, we'll, uh, we'll have a philosophical battle. But uh, the, the show is about this um, particular figure who is sort of a warrior knight and part of a warrior knight cast known as the uh, Mandalores, and uh, he is tasked in the show to protect this baby alien creature who looks a lot like Yoda, so uh, all, all the fans of the Mandalorian have labeled this little creature Baby Yoda, and Baby Yoda is uh, going on a long journey uh, to his particular homeland with this Mandalorian protector. And this protector takes care of Baby Yoda through violent ambushes, blaster fights, desert dragons, and even gray lightsaber attacks. Uh, but all the while is protected by this overseer. Now, ham-handed segue into our text from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this uh, toddler Jesus enters a very uh, difficult, R-rated world of conspiracy, brutality, and murder. Uh, and yet, heaven interjects at every point to protect the toddler Christ from destruction. And I would like to speak today about this passage from Matthew. I'm not going to focus on the uh, the, the great Holocaust that uh, was enacted by King Herod, uh, but instead I'm going to show how heaven's interjection is seen in this passage through the language of fulfillment. You may have noticed that that language is repeated in this passage. It's repeated three times that something about the actions of Christ or the movement of the story fulfilled the scriptures or completed the scriptures. And that, again, happens three times within ten verses. So I want to discuss with you these fulfillments and through them show how this young toddler Christ was protected by God and then I'll conclude with uh, some words about uh, dragons and destiny as they relate to all of us. So, fulfillment number one, a descent into Egypt. In the first verses of our passage, uh, Joseph dreams a dream, uh, and in this dream, he recognizes that he and his family are in duress in the Holy Land, and they need to flee to Egypt. Now, this Joseph is not the first Joseph to have a dream in the midst of duress that makes him move to Egypt. Uh, we just spent 12 weeks talking about another Joseph from the Old Testament who had dreams and they got him uh, to move to a particular place. Well, this after that dream is had, there is this comment in verse 15. I invite you to read it with me. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew here is recalling an Old Testament passage from the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. But here's the tricky thing. When Hosea first penned those words, he was not so much looking forward to a man named Jesus Christ who would be sojourning in Egypt. He was looking backwards to his own 
nation and their experience within Egypt. And he's personifying the Israelites within Egypt as God's son. So he is saying God has established this paternal bond with us, that we are a particularized people special to him. And he brought us out of the nation of Egypt, out of slavery. And God originally, you may know, uh, sent Israel into Egypt to protect them from a famine. That's why Joseph, after he had risen the ranks of the Egyptian aristocracy, decided to uh, have his family come to him to escape uh, the famine. Well, now he, uh, God sends his son Jesus into Egypt, not to escape a famine, but to escape a mad king. Uh, but the question that I think ought to be on our minds is simply this. Why is Matthew using the Old Testament like that? He's taking a quotation from Hosea that doesn't seem to be messianic in any way and applies it to the Messiah. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Is he twisting the Old Testament for his own partisan purposes to promote Jesus Christ and to make Jesus look legitimate? Well, many people conclude that way. I think that's a lazy reading of the text. I don't think that's what Matthew was doing at all. Instead, I think what Matthew was doing is seeing a broader theme in Hosea's ancient words. And he sees that the timeline and the experience of Jesus Christ is linked to the experience of ancient Israel. And he sees Jesus as sort of the truest Israelite who's ever lived. And so Jesus is going to experience similar things within his life than Israel, than Israel experienced in their own long history. Out of Egypt I called my son is what we call a typological prophecy. A typological prophecy. Now what does that mean? Uh, typology within the Old and New Testaments goes something like this. It notices certain elements, trends, builds, storylines, personalities within the Old Testament and sees and understands how Jesus might complete that idea or flesh that idea out more fully. Jesus himself employed this method when reading the Old Testament. You may remember that when he once commented upon the story of Jonah and how Jonah ended up in the belly of a great fish for three days, Jesus said, my burial, my entombment will be similar. The son of man will be buried in the heart of the earth for three days. So he's reading the story of Jonah typologically and understanding that it finds its fullest fulfillment not in a smelly man in fish bowels, but in himself in the heart of the earth. Well, uh, similarly, that's what's happening here. And that's why we have to understand that some Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are very direct, very direct. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's very clear. The Messiah will ride into Jerusalem in triumph on a donkey. Very direct. And then there are other prophecies that are not as direct, that are in fact typological. They try to show how Jesus fulfills the big story of Israel. Jesus exemplifies uh, the journey, the pilgrimage of the Jewish people. And that's what's happening here when we see the first fulfillment out of Egypt I called my son. So we see a descent into Egypt, and then there's a second fulfillment, a darker fulfillment. We'll call this the fulfillment of the new Pharaoh. Matthew writes about the massacre that occurs in Bethlehem in this way. He writes about Herod and his jealousy of a rival, a rival king, 
And so he has all of the young boys under two years old slaughtered. Now, Bethlehem is a very, very small community. This is a handful of children, um, and they're slaughtered. Now, some people will critique this story and say there is no external evidence that King Herod ever ordered the murder of infants in Bethlehem. No historical record of, uh, at all. Of course there's not. No politician would have ever had that recorded. And secondly, the only thing that ever was recorded by Josephus, by Philo, by all of the ancient Jewish historians, are when rich politicians got killed or somebody with royal blood got killed, they wrote that down in a book. They didn't care about kids in a little tiny small town. Nevertheless, we have all sorts of reasons to believe that Herod would do this sort of thing because Herod did this sort of thing all the time including killing Hasmonean children. You may remember that the Hasmoneans were, it was a royal dynasty uh, with royal blood. Herod was very threatened by them because they had more royal blood than Herod did. And so he had all of their children baptized to death in mikvah baths. All the children killed. So he's, you know, he has this tendency. Uh, and so it's not surprising that he would act on it here in Bethlehem. Nevertheless, Matthew expresses this massacre's connection to the Old Testament in this way, in verse 17. Please follow along. Then was fulfilled, again that language of fulfillment, completion, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Long history to this little passage. I'll explain it briefly. Um, He is here citing Jeremiah chapter 31. But here's what's tricky. Jeremiah 31 itself is recalling an even earlier passage from Genesis 35. And Genesis 35 mentions, albeit briefly, a very tragic and sad story about a mother and her son. So Rachel, who is Jacob's wife, his favored wife, uh, is traveling. She's traveling from Ramah up north to Bethlehem in the south, and the journey is about 30 miles long, and right outside of her destination, right outside of Bethlehem, she starts to have labor pains. She gives birth to a son named Benjamin, and she dies in labor. This is seen as just a profound and tragic loss. And in fact, uh, Jacob, and we know this from Jacob's story in the Bible, never got over it. He never got over the pain of this loss. Well, Jeremiah is reminded of that very dark, tearful, grievous episode and likens it in his own day to the incoming Babylonian army that is sacking Jerusalem and Bethlehem and either killing the children or uh, taking them back to Babylon as prisoners. He is essentially saying that Rachel still cries in her grave because of the Babylonian raiders. Well, Matthew was saying, and Rachel is crying again, because yet again, a whole nother set of innocents are being murdered by a madman. This just keeps happening in our history. And so Rachel doesn't stop crying. And while all of that is to be seen in this prophetic utterance and this connection to the big story of the Old Testament, there is yet another Old Testament connection that I think ought not to escape our notice, uh, another connection to Herod's brutality, and it's this, Pharaoh. King Herod is behaving just like the Egyptian Pharaoh in the Exodus story. You may remember after Moses was born, the Pharaoh became paranoid because of the uh, vast expansion of his slave population and decided it would be good policy to take uh, the youngest children and kill them 
And that is what Herod is doing here. Herod is bearing Pharaoh's genocidal mantle. Well, we read from Revelation chapter 12 tonight. In Revelation chapter 12, you know, the reading with the dragon, right? Um, offers its own Lord of the Rings style of Christmas story, right? It portrays Herod as the dragon ready to devour the child. Um, and it seems that uh, this uh, dragon-like entity within the world, referred to in various ways in Scripture, sometimes as the dragon, sometimes as the serpent, sometimes as the leviathan, sometimes as the chaotic sea, sometimes as the lion, uh, this wickedness, this malevolence that is personified in the Satan wears a variety of masks. Sometimes he dons a pharaoh mask. Sometimes he dons a Babylonian mask. Sometimes he dons a Herod mask. But the goal is always the same when it issues from the Satan. And the goal is to steal, to kill, and to destroy, right? to obstruct, to thwart the work of God. And I am uh, wondering tonight if you have ever faced down a pharaoh. Uh, here's what I mean. You, you know that I have said frequently from this pulpit, and I mean it, that human nature is evenly distributed. I believe that fully and firmly. What I don't mean by that phrase is that every human is equally bad, because that's just not true. What I mean is we all have the potential for more darkness than we can fathom. Uh, we, all have, uh, we all have that capacity within us. Well, uh, there are some people who because of a, a lack of repentance and ultimately the grace of God, have the venom of the serpent take hold. And it's fermenting within. And it tends to leak into the system and take over more and more and more of a given personality until they are moved by malevolence and blinded to the light. And my hope and prayer for you is that you never run into a person like that. And if you do, you'll never forget it. I've only had to deal with one. And let's just say I'm still in recovery. Uh, but maybe you've had to face down a pharaoh or somebody like that, somebody in whom malevolence has taken over. Uh, it, it can be a very, very nasty business whenever the venom uh, ferments and has a real dominion over a person. Uh, because then what you're dealing with is, of course, not just the person, but the power behind the person. And I know I'm speaking rather darkly right now, but Scripture speaks rather darkly. Because some people are so moved by malevolence that they think that it is probably better to murder children in order to safeguard a political position. And that's where Herod ended up on the inside. And that's what caused him to act that way on the outside. But what's fascinating is while the dragon seeks to bite down on the necks of innocence, God preserves the toddler Christ from Herod. But not forever. Because he, like the innocent babies of Bethlehem, will also die as an innocent victim. But in a later time and on another sunny day. Well, that's the second fulfillment regarding the new Pharaoh. Then there's a third fulfillment, which is an exodus from Egypt. So after Herod dies, Joseph has another dream of a familial exodus back to the promised land. And this is what it says in verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
Again, the toddler Christ mimics the history of Israel. Enters Egypt, faces into a pharaoh, and then leaves Egypt. Uh, He becomes a portrait of divine deliverance, a reminder of the deliverance story of Israel. Now, I have to say about this particular prophecy, skeptics regarding the New Testament love it. They love it for all the wrong reasons because they think it disproves Matthew's legitimacy. They look at this text and they say, now, wait a minute. There is no verse in scripture, not a one in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. They're correct. There isn't. You can read it. Look it up in a concordance if you have one and you will find nothing because it's not there. Um, And so they conclude, the skeptics, that Matthew is either completely ignorant of the Old Testament or worse, he's lying so that he can prove to dimwits that Jesus is legitimate. Well, I would suggest that when we come to Scripture and have a question about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, what we might not want to conclude, at least not immediately, is that the authors are morons. It's probably better to have a little bit of humility and say, I wonder if there's more going on here than I can yet see. It's probably better to come to Scripture with what I call a hermeneutic of trust, thinking that these things have been preserved for our good, for a reason, by people who are not trying to brainwash you, but we're trying to help you understand something that is so profound it can be barely put into words. So um, here's what I think is actually happening. Matthew is not fabricating anything. He's likely referencing uh, a prophecy, not directly quoting, but referencing a prophecy about the Messiah from Isaiah 11. And yes, Isaiah 11, we read it every Christmas Eve because it's a messianic prophecy. And this is what Isaiah 11 says. There shall come forth a shoot out of the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now here's where uh, a language or a word study comes in uh, handy. The Hebrew word for shoot or branch is netzer. There's only one town in Judea named after the branch or the shoot. Netzareth or Nazareth. So not only was Jesus born in Bethlehem, the place of David's origin, the place of kings, a tiny little town, but with one with a great historical pedigree, he also then moves to a town called Branchville or Messiah Town so that we understand the, you know, the connection. He's moving into a place uh, that in some way reveals his very identity. And that is what Matthew wants us to see. So in Matthew chapter 2, the author is showing a Jesus who experiences Israel's pained history. He walks where his people have walked. Uh, He experiences a descent into Egypt, a new and murderous Pharaoh, and an exodus into the promised land. Thus he fulfills not just individual little proof texts from the Old Testament. He fulfills the big, massive story. And one way of understanding fulfillment, Eric and I were talking about this before, one way of understanding fulfillment is completion. Jesus is here to complete all the aches and yearnings that are present within the long story of Israel and God's people. And As he fulfills these themes within ancient scripture, he is protected by heaven every step of the way. Now, a concluding word about dragons and destiny. 
Now, the text that we just read unveils a war. It unveils a war between the forces of the dragon and the forces of destiny. Uh, regarding the dragon, uh, in the fall of humanity in Genesis, there is this dark prediction about a war between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman. There's this tension that is built into the world between the light and the dark. There is a restless antagonism against the good and the noble and the beautiful, an antagonism that devours children and causes mothers to weep for the rest of their lives. Uh, St. Paul calls this tension the principalities and the powers. Right? Uh, and this <clears throat> reality, this dark and vague, mysterious power in the world, seeks to latch on to human beings and work through them, labor through them, just as the Holy Spirit seeks to latch on to human beings and work through them. Well, there are other powers that want to do the same thing. And there remains, even though it's God's garden, there remains a dragon in the garden of the Lord, and it is not wise to disbelieve in dragons. Not at this point. Uh, that is to say, evil's desire to influence the human race. Uh, the venom of the dragon still exists and seeks to create a viral home within us, within our intellectual lives, within our social media lives, within our emotional lives, our psychological lives, our spiritual lives, our physical lives. It'll take anything it can get and spreads like a virus within. Oh, and that's why the Christian life is both endless comfort and an agonizing struggle. Uh, because it is a war, and not just a war with us as the children of light versus everything else around us, which is darkness. No, 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 the war is right here. It's in the core, uh, because we have the venom within as well. But we also have something combating that venom, which is the Spirit of God uh, doing battle with the Spirit of the Age. And uh, this is an agonizing uh, struggle, and that's why if you're experiencing as a Christian a great deal of tumult within regarding uh, particular ways of thinking or particular ways of acting or some uh, recidivistic uh, difficulty that keeps arising within your family of origin that you can't just shake very easily or you're, you keep falling into temptation or you're profoundly addicted or you, um, you keep having the same sort of arguments with your spouse or you despair or you're struggling with faith, with really trusting that this is true. Um, if you're experiencing those things, you're not a freak show. That's just what it means to be a human being. That's what it means to have the flesh and the spirit antagonistically uh, conjoined right now. Um, and, and so the, this is why uh, in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I brought back the verses that they kicked out of the politically correct hymnals. Yeah, I did. And, uh, and one of the verses, and some of you might know it by now, is, is this. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. It's crying out. It's saying, I still have a snake in my heart. I need you to kill it. I need you to kill it. The problem is not just out there. It's in here. And so uh, how, how do we do this? How do we manage within this life in which not only is our world antagonistic, but we ourselves are divided. Well, we run to the child of destiny. We run to the only secure one. We run, run to the one who seemed so often to have power even over his context and who, when he became powerless, 
did that of his own volition and accord. This is the Christ who becomes the dragon slayer, who can dispel the venom within. Um, And so this is really, I think, how it begins. Whenever you're dealing with something in life that is bigger than you are, when you sense that there is evil that has spread within you, what you don't want to do is try to muscle it down yourself and just say, well, if I just develop better habits. By the way, if you think just changing your habits is a better way to live, like if that's the cure for all your problems, don't be a Christian. Why would you be a Christian? You can do it yourself. You just need to develop better habits. Instead, I would say the first thing you need to do before you develop a plan is talk to God. You have to go to God. You have to go to the child of destiny. You have to go to the one who survived Herod. You have to kneel before the maker of heaven and earth, the king of kings. You go there first. You go there first for wisdom. You go there first for identity. You go there first for security. And after you dwell there, he might give you something to do. But stay there for a while. Stay there for a while, because otherwise you'll think it's just your project and you have to manage it, and that assumes you have the power to manage it, which you don't, not for the long haul. You need a dispositional reorientation, and that can only happen if you stay with the child of destiny. And so that's why we cry out to God. It's why we start with God and we don't start with us. That's how we defeat the poison of the dragon. So that's the first point. Now something about destiny. You know, in the great and classic stories, all the seemingly invincible dragons are eventually defeated. You remember them? Smog. Maleficent, St. George's very British dragon, uh, and, of course, I have to add this, the desert dragon in Mandalorian. Well, Matthew chapter 2 shows that providence prevails over the dragon. Jesus fulfills and completes the Old Testament and does so without a scratch and becomes the Messiah not only for Israel but for the whole world. You know, even as a toddler, the destined Jesus is unthwartable. Even as a toddler who can't yet talk, he's unthwartable. In spite of the horror shows of the nastiest sort, salvation lives. Salvation lives to experience and also to cure Israel's wayward history. Salvation lives to resurrect the slaughtered innocent children of Bethlehem. Salvation lives to wipe away the flood of tears from the weeping Rachels of our world. And salvation lives to slaughter what is slaughtering us. And salvation will prevail. Salvation will crush the dragon's skull. And salvation will protect and preserve your life, even unto eternity. Amen.